read it as our authority. And this is what God's word says in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and the prince of demons, by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called to them, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brother came, brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and mother. This is God's word. Let's pray together. God, you are our God, and earnestly we want to seek you. Some are seeking you perhaps for the first time, and we pray that they would be found by you. Others perhaps have known you, and still, God, I pray that you would give them a great hunger and a thirst for you, as if in a dry and weary land. And God, that you would show yourself glorious and strong and powerful. God, help us to seek you during this time and see your glory in your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Christ is either one, deceived by mankind, or deceived mankind by his conscious fraud. He was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma, says one pastor You've probably heard this argument before, it was popularized, more popularized by C.S. Lewis when he said this, that a man who ha- was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of sorts, of the sort of things who a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. The argument that Lewis puts before us, he's Lord, he's lunatic, or he's liar. I think that's a close to being... True, there's maybe a few more possibilities. Perhaps we could say that the Jesus of the Scripture is a legend, and so maybe he's not any of those things and didn't exist at all. But if we take the Jesus of Scripture as a real historical Jesus, and we should, we have all sorts of evidence that supports that, then I think that we do need to reckon with this Jesus as Lewis has intended us, that he is either Lord 
or he's a lunatic, or he's a liar. And on facing the fork in the road named Jesus, not everyone falls down and calls him Lord. There are all sorts of other examples of other people who have landed on one of the other conclusions. And that's what Mark uses and warns us of. You see, many of those who are actually in close proximity to Jesus are those who have come to a different conclusion. A conclusion essentially of rejection of him showing that they have unbelief. And showing that unbelief comes in many different forms, in many different faces, from many different backgrounds. And what Mark does is he draws this out uniquely. So Mark uses a technique here that we are going to call a Markin sandwich. It's like a Cuban, but it's Markin. So he puts, you know, like you have a sandwich, right? You have two buns and you got stuff in the middle. That's what he's doing. He's, he's going to have two stories on each side of one story, and they're all related. Sometimes the events will be like, you'll see the start of the event, then he'll put something in the middle, and then he'll do the end of the event. That's not exactly what it is here, but he'll put three stories or so together to kind of fit together to emphasize something. And this is what he does here. We see the family uh, and close friends. Then we see him talk about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and then we see the family come back in here. So we have this sandwich for emphasis. They're all related in some capacity. And what this sandwich emphasizes here is the rejection of Jesus. And the warning in the middle is, is really what we're meant to receive. We are meant to be warned, warned of what Jesus warns us of. All along the way, Mark is trying to do what he's always been trying to do. Move us to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is not lunatic or liar, but that he is Lord. Mark's in- intensity up to this point is admirable, right? I mean, we've seen a fast-paced, intense gospel from Mark's hand. Up to this point, we, we've seen that he doesn't skip around very much. He goes right into he's baptized. He goes out in the wilderness. Then he faces demons and starts casting them out, teaching with authority. He enters into five straight conflicts. Here we are. There's intensity, and it adds weight to the warning that Mark gives us here. But even in this warning, Mark is trying to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is Lord, and it's only that if he is Lord that he can actually accomplish what he set out to accomplish in the beginning. He wrote a gospel of the Son of God, good news of the Son of God. And it's only if Jesus is this Son of God that there actually is good news. It's only if if Jesus is Lord is there good news for us. If He really is Lord, then there is good news. Then He is one who can actually make us, what He says here, family of God and part of God's family. And so after Mark has shared and talked about how He appointed the twelve, He moves right back into Jesus doing ministry, back at his base of operations, probably in Capernaum, maybe even at uh, Peter's house that they were at before. And that's where we pick up in verse 20, when it says that he went home. That's perhaps where he went, maybe it was somewhere else. And the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. Mark has consistently portrayed crowds as, as kind of an obstacle to the mission of God. It's not as if Jesus can't get around them. But as if they're constantly standing in between things and causing some issues. Here, Jesus can't even eat, which as a a person, someone who is fully human, he must do. He is going to have to eat for the mission to go forward. But at this point, it seems that everywhere that Jesus travels, there's a crowd that's going to go with him, that's going to observe him, think about him, question him, or be there to see what happens. And here is a different kind of crowd. We have the normal crowd and some others enter in verse 21. When his family heard it, They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now, 
we think that this is his family here. I think context helps us that this is his family, but it also could mean that the ones that are closely associated with Jesus. So his close friends, maybe that are familiar with his background, maybe from his hometown, but probably includes his family as well. And those who are close to Jesus, they've taken in the spectacle of his life, they've heard some of his teaching, the rumors of, of what he has done throughout the area, and they're unimpressed. And I think perhaps we could go further and say that they're not just unimpressed, they're embarrassed. They don't like what's going on. That Jesus is a spectacle at all bothers them. And they actually oppose Jesus. They want to seize him. Because they think that he's insane. They think that he's out of his mind, that he's lost his senses. This is family and friends. Those who have known him and know him. This is their estimation of Jesus and his life so far. Not that he's Lord, but that he's a lunatic. Tough words for Jesus. Maybe some of you are like, man, my family thinks I'm crazy too, so like I can identify with Jesus more here than anywhere else. Amen. Jesus was despised. <laughs> I don't know how to do, deal with that. I'm going to leave that one alone. Jesus was despised, rejected by men, acquainted with grief, not esteemed. And here we just have a small drink of the bitter cup that Jesus has to take over and over and over again. He knows rejection. If you're looking for a friend in the midst of your rejection, here's one who knows it. From those who are near and from those who are far. These people, these, this family, those who are close to him, they come to him and they say, he's out of his mind. What a, what a frightful thing that those within close proximity to Jesus... Don't know Jesus rightly. Proximity to Jesus doesn't ensure that we are going to see Jesus rightly, that we're going to show right allegiance to Jesus, that we're going to follow him as we should. You see, the reality is there that one can be really close to Jesus and actually know lots of things about him, have an inside look at his life, and still be far away from him. Not too different than the faith of demons that we've looked at already. And this is a stark reality, but it's evident that we see those Close to Jesus here come, and they say, he's out of his mind. And it's not just them, we see this other times as well. Judas, who was close to him for years, hearing his teaching, seeing his work, is indeed far from him. Or the demons, who rightly recognize him, are indeed far from him. And so if our knowledge of Jesus, of his identity, of his working, of who he is and what he has done, doesn't lead us to bow before him as Lord and to worship him as the one true living God, then we actually miss him, no matter how close we are to him. You see, we're going to justify that in some way. Here his family, who's close to him, doesn't want to bow to him as Lord, and they're going to justify their unbelief. And here's how they're going to do it. He's got to be out of his mind. We'll find a reason to justify our own unbelief and to reject Jesus, and that's what they're doing here. If he's not Lord, then we'll find something else that he is, and then we'll reject him on those grounds. And Mark, what he does here is he follows up this brief scene, a couple verses, with a scene with the scribes. Again, we're, we're getting some close connections, probably a connection that you don't want to have. In the book of Mark so far, the scribes don't have the best name, and they shouldn't. So if you're close friends and family and you're, you're put right up against the scribes, it's probably not a good sign. Verse 22 
the scribes came down from Jerusalem, and they're saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now, earlier in Mark, the scribes were posing insinuating questions. They were leading to this kind of end, but they weren't there yet. You might remember in chapter 2, verse 7, this is when the paralytic is dropped before Jesus, and they're questioning in their minds, like, well, how can he forgive sins? None but God can forgive sins. They got the wrong conclusion, but they didn't just outright say it. In fact, they didn't say that out loud. Jesus knew their thoughts. So they're asking some insinuating questions. In chapter 2, verse 16, they're kind of questioning again. Like, if Jesus is this great teacher, then why is he eating with sinners? But they're not just coming out and saying that he's crazy, he's out of his mind, he's a liar, he's a fraud. They're not doing any of that yet until now. The questions are over. The verdict is in. He is out of his mind. He is doing these things, as they say, by the prince of demons. That's his power. It's interesting that there's no denial of his work. He's actually doing these things. His greatest opponents aren't denying his work. They're not denying his power. They're recognizing his power. But what they are doing is they're questioning the source of his power. And they're not just questioning. They're asserting that the source of his power is not from the Lord. It's from Satan, the prince of demons, Beelzebul. Their unbelief isn't about his work or his power, but the source. It's not a question, but their official judgment, their stated opposition, saying by the power of Beelzebul, he does these things. Now, I think originally Beelzebul was a Philistine deity, meaning kind of Lord of the the Flies, not Fries. So kind of of dead things, right? That's the, the idea. But in the New Testament, Mark helps us out here and gives us, here's what the New Testament thinks of this prince of demons. That's Beelzebul. We don't need to go any further than that. Mark gives us that. They're saying, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. They've taken a look at the evidence. They've listened to the claims. They've heard what Jesus has done. And they say, yeah, that's by the power of the prince of demons that he's casting out demons. They assert that the Son of God who can heal diseases, speak with authority, and cast out demons has, is possessed by Satan himself. So this isn't exactly the same route that his family takes in saying that he's out of his mind. It's more along the lines maybe of that he's a fraud. He's a liar route. So he says he's doing it by this power, but actually it's by the power of the prince of demons that this is happening. And so all who have been introduced to Jesus or exposed to Jesus have seen his work are going to be responding in some capacity. They're going to respond somehow. We've seen his family. They've seen it. They've heard it. They know what's going on, and they say he's out of his mind. We see the scribes. They've seen it. They've heard it. They try to process everything. They say he's possessed by Satan himself. Everyone's going to be responding to Jesus in one capacity or another. And here's two kind of different forms of unbelief, and they're all going to have some sort of justification. It's going to be explained in some way. Jesus is going to be Lord, he's going to be liar or lunatic. There's going to be something along that spectrum. (laughs) spectrum. We're all going to respond. And rejection and unbelief are being spewed at Jesus from near and from far. And here's his response in verse 23. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? I think it's really kind of Jesus to have started with a question after what has just been said about him to respond in this way. It's very kind of him. And he says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, 
but it's coming to an end. Here's what Jesus does. He looks at their unbelief, he receives their argument, and he starts asking it questions. He's posing questions of it. In other words, what he's doing is he's exposing their argument, and he's looking at it logically, and he's exposing how illogical their unbelief really is. He's exposing the fallacy within their argument. They're saying Jesus is not Lord, so he must be lunatic or a liar or a fraud. I'm going to justify my stance some way. And Jesus looks at them and he exposes that as illogical, unthinkable, a strategy for disaster and ruin. Because their unbelief, it actually doesn't make sense in the end. He says, how can someone divided against itself, how can that kingdom still stand? If Satan is divided against Satan, if it's by the power of Satan, then I'm casting out demons. Then how is that kingdom going to be able to go forward? doesn't make any sense. It's completely illogical. The strategy for disaster for any kingdom to be divided against itself and still think it's going to go forward. And we know this logic. We get this logic that Jesus is exposing because we see it in our own households. Maybe the household, which is full of people who have all of their own kingdoms and want their own authority, caused some problems in even getting to here this morning. You, you maybe struggled with the kingdom divided against itself, cannot even get to church on a Sunday morning on time. Like, that's the logic that is being exposed here. Like, if we have all these little sovereigns going in all their different directions, and we're trying to round them up into one, like, that's a hard kingdom to handle. Think of the Civil War, where we actually have a nation divided against itself, split in so many different ways, even families split down the middle. Can you imagine, during the Civil War, trying to coordinate the kind of invasion that we saw on D-Day? where we're trying to push everything forward into this one invasion of a foreign country. be unthinkable. And yet that's what Jesus is saying. Your your logic is pointing to a kingdom divided against itself, and you think it's standing. He's exposing the logic of their unbelief. They're not saying he's Lord, so they're going to justify them saying that he's a lunatic or that he's a liar or a fraud or something along that line. So what Jesus had done, what has been put before them already is that he has come and he has had his way with demons and no one is denying that he tells them what to do and they obey him he has been displaying the authority of a kingdom and jesus and mark are saying that is the kingdom of god that he's displaying that's the authority that he's using the authority of the kingdom of god not the authority of the prince of demons and because that's true we have verse 27 He goes on to explain that no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. So he's saying that Satan's kingdom isn't crumbling from division. Satan's house is not a house divided. But Jesus is saying, although his house is not being divided, it is most certainly being invaded. There's another kingdom that has been proclaimed Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. He's invading the kingdom. The picture is of Satan as this strong man with these goods in his house. And there's only one way to get them out of his possession. He owns these goods. They're his possession. They're in his house. It's a picture of all of us, all of people that are in sin. See, all are born into sin. They are slaves to sin. They are subject to Satan's accurate accusations against them before a holy God saying this man's a sinner. And we would have to agree. And we indeed are in sin, deserving of God's wrath and death. How then are any to be saved from God's wrath and to escape possession of Satan? Escape his reign. The strong man must first be bound, Jesus says. 
And Jesus passed through the waters, dirtied by the sins of people, goes into the wilderness where he meets this enemy head on, comes out unscathed, and starts saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he goes, and what does he do? He starts teaching with authority, casting out demons, healing diseases. He puts on a clinic, exercising kingdom authority by binding the strong man everywhere he puts his foot. In Mark, it is no mistake that Jesus comes, and the first thing that we see him do, his first miracle in Mark, is that he casts out a demon before he heals. It's no mistake in Mark that the paralytic comes down before him, and he first forgives him, then he heals him. In other words, Jesus is binding first, and then taking possession He's binding the strong man, preparing for the plundering of goods. And this has been foreseen. We look back in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49 verse 24 says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For for I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. God entered into the ring to contend with those who contend with Him, His own. He came to bind and plunder so that all would know what Isaiah says here, that I am the Lord God, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob, and there is no other. So that they would know, as the end of verse 26 says in Mark chapter 3, that the kingdom of Satan is coming to an end. The evidence of Jesus' life so far points to one conclusion— That Jesus is winning, that Jesus is binding, that he is soon to plunder all the goods that he wants because the strong man has been completely bound and disarmed. That is what the conclusion is so far from the Gospel of Mark. Surely then we would move to that conclusion where all flesh would know that Jesus is Lord, that he is Savior, that he is the Mighty One, the Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. But that's not what Mark goes on to share with us. Some are looking at the evidence that seems to us to point that Jesus is the greater authority, that logic points to us and says, it's not by the power of the prince of demons that he's casting out demons, and they're still saying, he's a lunatic, or a fraud, or worse. But many aren't saying he's Lord. Jesus' family and his scribes, they look at the evidence and they say he's out of his mind. He does this by the prince of demons. They're not saying he's Lord. And so Jesus warns us in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Leaves all sorts of big questions about what is blasphemy of the Spirit. Augustine, long ago, wrote that it's a state of enmity and impenitence lasting unto death. It's a hardness of heart that if if not repented of in this life will prove to be unforgiven. In other words, it's unbelief that persists throughout life. I think that's true, but I think we need some 
to be a little bit more specific. So I like this from one scholar who says that blasphemy of the Spirit is a specific, active, and final choice to declare the person and work of Jesus as being demonic in origin. I think this is supported by verse 30. Mark helps us out by giving us some explanation. He says, For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. In other words, it seems to put them in the category of being guilty because they're saying that his power, that the origin of his power, the origin of his work doesn't come from God, it comes from Satan himself. In other words, it's looking at Jesus' work in defiance and claiming it's demonic in origin and that it's not of the Spirit. It's a hardened, unrepentant disposition toward Jesus. It's a settled opposition to him and his work and the witness of the Spirit in and through him. What I don't think it is, what I don't think is happening, and what I don't think that blasphemy in the Spirit is, is an eternal condemnation on someone who has a slip of the tongue. Oh, is that when I said that, did I blaspheme the Spirit, and now am I eternally condemned? I don't think that's what we're talking about here. I also don't think that it's one who has at one point rejected Jesus, or is even extremely hardened by Jesus, from Jesus. We see Paul. Paul could not have been more against Jesus than he was. He was so against Jesus that he wanted to bind and kill all those who would proclaim his name. He would even travel distances so that he could do that very thing. Paul was hardened to Jesus and his work. He wasn't ignorant of either. He knew of Jesus and he knew of his work. He'd heard the stories. He'd probably seen some of it. He'd seen the work of the apostles and the things they were doing in the name of Jesus And he was hardened against these things. But what does he say in 1 Timothy 1.13? I was formerly a blasphemer. But God met Paul on a road to Damascus. So his heart wasn't too hard to be transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Even within the people that Jesus is speaking with in this house in the book of Mark, we have Peter. Here's another example. Peter, right? He heard these words in person. And he goes on. When Jesus says that he's going to die, Peter says, no, you're not. To which he has to be rebuked by Jesus when he says, get behind me, Satan. It's a stout rebuke for one of his most close followers. Well, Peter rebounds from that a little bit. But then what does he do? He goes on to deny Jesus multiple times to multiple sources. But God transformed Peter's heart. So these two weren't guilty of this eternal sin. I think that leads us even further into thinking that this is a specific, active, and final choice to declare the person and work of Jesus as being demonic in origin. That it is a settled opposition to both Jesus and the Spirit's witness in and through his life. And so we're all probably thinking, and you've all probably gone to this text thinking, have I done this? Is this me? Am I guilty and in danger of being under eternal condemnation in my own life? And many have said this, and I think that it's right, that if that's a sincere question of your heart, then my answer is probably not. You're probably not guilty of this. That you're probably okay because even the question, if it's sincere, shows some some tenderness in your heart and your conscience that I think is not what blasphemy of the Spirit would be speaking of. But context helps us here. 
Jesus is not eating with tax collectors and sinners right now. He's not with people that haven't looked into his life and looked into the law. He is sitting around people who are called scribes. He's not speaking to Gentiles, but well-trained Old Testament experts. He's not around those who would call themselves sick, but those who think themselves well. That's who he's responding to at this point. He's responding to those who want to murder him in settled opposition of him. And in his response to them, he says that anyone who blasphemes the Spirit is guilty of eternal sin. So one commentator says, this is a message not for the tender conscience or the stumbling believer, but rather for the pseudo-religious who stands over against Jesus in smugness. And the scribes are showing and displaying their hardness of heart toward both Jesus and his work. They had made up their mind. They had concluded on the evidence. Jesus is doing this by the prince of demons. There's no questions anymore. There's settled opposition against him. Now, are they guilty of this sin? We don't know finally and surely that they are. But their close association with this makes it pretty hard to divide them from this. But either way, I think what they do is they do help us apply this warning. And I think that we should receive this as a warning for our own lives. Because Jesus has their unbelief in mind as he gives this warning in this statement. And while we may not be in settled opposition like we there were, while we not be, may not call the, the work of Jesus the work of the prince of demons, hopefully none of us would say that, while we may not think or say that Jesus is a lunatic or a liar, We have to question, are there areas of our own heart, are there areas in our lives that are hardened to the person of Jesus, that are hardened to the work of Jesus? Is there an area in us that is hardened toward him? Do we ever stand over and against Jesus in smugness and self-righteous independence and saying, I'm not sick? Not here anyway. I think those areas would be areas of danger that we need to keep a close eye on or ask some brothers and sisters to help us out. Because what hardening does is it leads to more and more hardening, if not dealt with. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 10 that if anyone thinks that he stands, needs to take heed lest he fall. So if there's some places that you're hardened in, you think, I'm not sick. I'm well. I have no need of a physician. Take heed, brothers, sisters, lest you too fall. If we ever can look at the person work of Jesus... And it not move us to the conclusion that Jesus is Lord. If it not move us to worship of Him and love for Him. Then I think we need to be careful. And watch those areas in our lives very carefully. That was the path of the scribes. They looked at the person and work of Jesus. And it didn't move them to love Him. Submit to Him. Worship Him. That was the path that they were on. Jesus didn't fit into their theology. They had all these thoughts of who God is and what he does, and they saw Jesus and they said, well, that doesn't fit into this. So they denied him rather than worship him. And one author says this, I think we need to take heed of, that if our theology does not quicken the conscience and soften the heart, it actually hardens both. If it does not encourage the commitment of faith, it reinforces the detachment of unbelief. If it fails to promote humility, it inevitably feeds pride. And that's the scribes, but is that us too? We need to be careful. This warning's for us. The warning of blasphemy 
may not be mostly directed or primarily directed at those who have this tender conscience and are struggling and thinking, do I do, have I done this or have I not? But it doesn't mean then that the warning is not for us to hear. It is for us to hear. There needs to be more than, oh, I'm glad I didn't commit that when we read this warning. It needs to lead us to examine our faith, examine our hearts. Where is their hardness? God, expose it in my life. Where am I not being led to worship? Is my theology just going to my mind and not transforming my heart? If that's what's going on, God, humble me. The thought that he gives here that if a man commits this, he doesn't have forgiveness, shouldn't lead us to treating sin or hardness casually, but carefully. It should make us look for hardness in our hearts wherever it may exist and want to root it out of our lives by the power of the Spirit. It should lead us to pursuing Jesus more, to sticking closer to Him who is a friend of sinners because we know that we're sick and we're in need of a physician. That's what this warning is meant to move us toward. Jonathan Edwards wrote, I think, 70 resolutions and one of them was this. This is number 56. Resolved. Never to give up nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. That's a heart that's guarded from slow hardening, casually treating sin that would walk in a way that would reject Jesus and his work. That needs to be our heart as well. Let's be resolved to never give up, nor in the least to slacken our fight with our own corruptions. Let that be our heart when we're thinking about our own sin and hardness. Let the warning wash over us in the right way to drive us closer to Jesus, more devoted to following him, more careful with our own sin and how we treat our own hearts that we might not pass over things that would lead us into further hardened against Jesus. And so that brings us back then to the Mark and Sandwich. Here we have the the warning in the middle. The blasphemy of the Spirit, and on either side we have family on the front end and family on the back end. I think all of them emphasizing rejection, meant to give us some intensity, some warning as we approach Jesus and think about what we're going to do with Him and decide about Him. Verse 31, and His mother and His brothers came, and standing outside they sent to Him and called Him. And a crowd was sitting around Him, and they said to Him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. We know that his family struggled with unbelief. In in John chapter 7, it says that. And his brothers, not even his own brothers, believed in him. Didn't believe. Presumably here they're calling for him so that they can take him away from this place. Like, you need to get out of this spectacle. Stop being the center of all this. Stop stirring up the crowds in this way. They want to take him home because they think he's out of his mind. That's what they said in verse 20 and 21. And again, listen to Jesus' reply, verse 33. He answered them, again with a question. Doesn't rebuke them sharply, there's a time for that, but here he questions. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, family in this culture and honor in that family were a major thing. But from your family, you received your identity, your inheritance. So if you're the son of a fisherman, there's a few of those of Jesus' disciples, then you're a fisherman. It's what you do. 
Now, you just fall in line with the family most often. You receive your inheritance from the family most often. You receive your identity from your family most often. So in a culture where family and honor were of great importance, Jesus' reply here is really, really significant. It's significant for his family that he's responding to. It's significant for his followers that he's sitting around. It's significant for us. You see, Jesus' response, it may come off as cold and unfeeling. Like, how would you like it if your actual son or brother said, hey, so who's really my mother? Like, what? are you kidding me? I was there when you were born. Do you not remember that cradle? I made you out of wood, and we put you in that manger. You're like, so Jesus responding the way it could seem kind of cold and unfeeling. I don't think he's like that. On the cross, Jesus looks and he says to John, John, behold your mother, take care of her. Even in his pain and agony, he's kind of others-oriented. He takes care of his mother. I think he loves his family. I don't think it's cold and unfeeling here, but it is right for him to speak this way because his family, his own mother, his own brothers need to be put in their proper place underneath him because he's not just son and he's not just brother. He's the son of God. And so there's a challenge in Jesus' answer. This who is my mother and my brothers pushes against their understanding both of Jesus and of the family And they both need to be broadened. They're much too narrow in both cases. They think of Jesus as much too narrow. And they think of the family and the family of God as much too narrow. And Jesus is going to cast a much broader net. So there's a challenge here. They know him as son or brother, but they have to be, he must be more than that to them. And he can't be mainly that. He's the son of God. He's not just son or brother. Not to any earthly figure. And because he's the son of God, relationship with him is the ultimate relationship. And he actually says that anyone can have this relationship with me in a close way. So the ultimate family is the family of God, not the natural family, the blood family. So he challenges them to both see him rightly and to see family rightly underneath him as the son of God in the family. Jesus' challenge also comes with, I think, a correction. You see, the way to be family is not just by natural connection or by bloodline. Jesus looks around and he corrects their understanding of the ultimate family by saying, who's my mother and my brothers? Who are they? It's those who do the will of God. He challenges them. The way to be family is by submitting to Jesus as Lord The the way to really be close to Jesus, the way to really be related to Jesus, in the way that matters most, in the ultimate way, is to submit to him as Lord and to do God's will. Jesus is saying to them, you want to be my family? Submit to me as Lord. Follow after me. Do the will of God. That's a wider circle than just your bloodline. That's including all sorts of people, some of whom were labeled tax collectors and sinners, scum of the earth. He says, oh, those people are in too. And this answer, I'm guessing, sent tremors through his family, through the crowd, because of how radical it is. But he's not taking family and honor and relationships lightly, and he's not even taking from the value of any of those things. What I think is he doing? he's doing, he's giving something better to all of us. To his own family and to us today, he's giving something better. One author says that his bloodline is now our bloodline. His inheritance is now our inheritance. And his family is now our family. That's what he's offering. 
You want to be my family? Submit to me as Lord. Do the will of God. So that now, if we are in Christ, then we have a new father, a new ancestry, and a new household bustling with brothers and sisters. And Jesus is inviting not just his mother and brothers and his natural family, who up to this point had rejected him, saying that he's out of his mind, or something along those lines. He is inviting, what does he say here? Whoever. Whoever. And the invitation for all is for to stop rejecting him, to, to no longer reject him, but rather to accept him and be accepted by him. To stop rejecting him and instead to bow before him as Lord And he will then include us as part of the family. Now some of his family up to this point thought he was crazy. Some maybe weren't quite that extreme and only saw him as like, well, he's just my brother. I don't think he's crazy, but he's not Lord. Maybe Mary, she had taken some things in her heart when he was born. Maybe she thought a little bit more. Like he's he's different. We don't get it, but but maybe she thought more. But up to this point, it doesn't seem that their faith goes any deeper than that. That they think of him as Lord at all. It doesn't seem like their faith is there yet. And yet, what does Jesus say? That's what's required to be part of the family. That's what's required to be family with the Son of God. Is only those who see him as Lord are going to do God's will. Only those who submit to him as Lord are going to be part of the family. If Jesus is just brother, or just son, or for us, just teacher, just friend, just another God... It's never going to lead us to doing God's will. If Jesus is a lunatic or a liar or a fraud, it will never lead to doing God's will. But whoever, whoever submits to him as Lord does the will of God and are part then of the family of God because the Son of God said so. If Jesus is the Son of God, if He is Lord, then there could be no greater invitation that He could have given here than to say that whoever does the will of God, He is my mother and my sister and my brother. And we can know that He has the authority to do this if He's the Son of God. He's the one that gets to say who can be in the family and who doesn't. It's His inheritance. It's His identity that He's sharing. Meaning then that whoever would submit to Him could come and be a part of the family of God and have a place where they belong fully and are accepted fully and have a father who loves them dearly and deeply and is committed to them to the very end, who can come to him and be fellow heirs with him and there is nothing that the Son of God does not own. Make no mistake. This story is placed in a beautiful spot. We could have done 31 through 35 on its own, so forgive me for not doing that. There's much there. But when we see it in this relationship with the other stories, I think Mark does something good for us. In the midst of of these warnings about rejecting Jesus and calling him lunatic or calling him a liar or a fraud, he puts this story about this family on either side, and I think he helps us do something because in the middle, he says, first what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to bind the strong man, then we're going to plunder his goods. And verse 34 comes along and says, he looks at those who are with him. In other words, there are some that are with him who are these things. Here are my mother and my brothers. Verse 34 is signaling that the plundering has already begun. Like, 
He's here, and he's starting to plunder already. He's looking around and saying, there are some that are already here that are mine. Look around. They're here. Brothers and sisters, let's look around and know the same. The plundering has been ongoing. Anyone here who would, with their whole heart, say, Jesus is Lord, like, is evidence to the authority of the Son of God, who can come in and bind the strong man and take whoever he wants. Our joining together in the belief that Jesus is the Son of God is a declaration that Jesus did what he promised he would do, that he came and he bound the strong man and he is just plundering as he wills because he has the authority to do that and that he's made us family. We're not just a family of families. We're a family. We're all together. His story is our story. His bloodline is our bloodline. His inheritance is our inheritance. Our inheritance, our family. All of us are going to have to reckon with Jesus. And after seeing what Mark has shown us, that some come and say lunatic, some say he's a fraud, he's a liar, he's possessed by the prince of demons, that's a few different directions we could go in our unbelief. We could call him lunatic, we could call him a liar, or we could call him Lord. Those who are part of the family of God are part of the family of God because they submit to him as Lord or they're not part of the family of God. So the question, brothers and sisters and everyone here, what do you say? Let's bow.